You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome into the Hoisty Kellers podcast, an exciting edition of the HTC podcast because we are recapping a Six win for the East Carolina football program. I'm your host, Stephen Igo, as always, rolled along on the Hoist of Colors podcast. And, you know, we could not celebrate a bowl eligibility victory without having Brett Hickman, the head coach at West Brunswick High School, Pirate alum, former Pirate assistant, join the podcast. Brett, uh, I think you're like uh, like many fans out there, like myself, who's an alum. Uh, it was a uh, it was a very special Saturday. Uh, for for all of Pirate Nation, right? Yeah, I saw a thread on the board as what's happened in your life since 2014. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it gave us a lot of time to really dissect of how long that really is in the grand scheme of things. Of you know, things seems like things went really smoothly there, really from 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 the skip era to the roughing era, right there from. Really, 06 to 14, I guess we missed a bowl game only one time. And, and you get to the point where you take it for granted. And, you know, it looks like brighter days are ahead. And it's it's been a slow build for, for Coach Houston. But, um, you know, not only getting the six this year, but, I, yeah, I think anybody can see that, you know, with the, with the youth on the roster as they continue to um, – get better and better and they develop and, and the team gets older and older that, that this is going to become a reality here for, for not only this year, but the next couple of years and beyond, hopefully. Yeah, it, it will, you know, we haven't spoken, uh, we've texted here and there, obviously you've been busy with your season at West Brunswick and everything, but we have not spoken on the podcast since very early in the season, Brett. I don't know what is that game it was, but the growth of this team, I think, since really the, the first the first game of the year, since App State, I think that's really the only game you can point to and say, hey, they just got outplayed. I think they've really outplayed almost everybody since then. Unfortunately, they found a way to lose to South Carolina and to some of the schools, uh, you know, UCF Houston since then. But, I mean, this team from the start of the season to now has really, I think, finally, finally met the vision that Mike Houston had for this program. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. Primarily on the defensive side of the ball. I mean, I think you see Coach Harrell's not having to rely as much on on scheming and blitzing as much. They've just gotten a little better at, at lining down at the line of scrimmage and and been able to effectively stop the run with the front seven and allow the back 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 guys to play coverage. And um, you know, they pretty much held up against everybody defensively. And then offensively, it's it's been more touch and go. But that side of the ball is also, you know, making some uh, improvements, in my opinion. You know, still a long way to go in terms of red zone efficiency, which nearly reared its ugly head again uh, yesterday. You know, if you talk about yardage, I believe that the yardage was over 500 to about 340 yesterday. But the game was tight because of – uh, a couple of timely turnovers and and red zone inefficiency, but overall, I think when the game is played between the twenties right now, East Carolina is a, a really quality football team, and that's um, why they're in a position to win seven, eight, nine football games again. ECU six and four after its victory over Memphis and bowl eligible for the first time since twenty fourteen. They're four and two 
in the American Athletic Conference, uh, Brett, and still have a chance to make a, a conference championship game. Probably not going to happen. I mean, they have to beat Navy, beat Cincinnati, and then Cincinnati's got to lose to SMU, and then SMU has to lose to Tulsa. So all that probably not going to happen, or at least that's a possibility. I want to dive more into the Memphis game specifically. This is the Memphis uh, post-game podcast, Brett. And we got, man, a lot to digest. Um, first off, you know, let's, let's start with the ending. Uh, the the two-point conversion. So I was in the stadium, you know, covering the game, and, uh, you know, I I thought it was interesting that when ECU called timeout, you could see them kind of gather on the sideline like, hey, let's let's be prepared for them to come back. And then you saw the Memphis sideline basically 15 seconds after they got over to talk things over. Like, their sideline went crazy because their coach had made the decision to go for it. But, I, you know, usually you could see kind of a panic on the visiting team sideline in that situation. ECU was not in a panic at all. It was, hey, we're prepared for this, and they seem ready for that call. Uh, what did you kind of see uh, happen on that play and, and, and unfold to, to let ECU escape with the victory? No, that game was won, you know, on that on, – on Wednesday afternoon when you practice special situations and you game plan whether or not the coaches do that game plan on Tuesday or Wednesday, I don't know. But uh, if you've ever looked at an offensive coordinator's call sheet, you know, you have first and ten plays or second and short plays or shot throws or, uh, you know, and there's a little section on, on everybody's call sheet is these are the – well, I guess you probably have to have a bigger call sheet now with the way college football is with, with two-point plays now with overtime. But – I digress, but there's a two-point conversion play sheet that the offense goes over, but most defenses have it too. And, um, you know, by what Memphis was doing, you know, you could see they were in a four-strong alignment with the back and the H-back lined up to the right of the quarterback. And generally that that Zen motion, that Zen, where they're trying to create a stack over there on those receivers – mostly means they're trying to run a offensive guys, call it a rub, defensive guys, call it a pick. But they're clearly expecting man coverage. But, you know, when you look at, at ECU's defensive alignment in that situation, they've, they've gone to this overload front a lot in passing situations where they're playing, a, you know, basically a 3D lineman on one side of the line of scrimmage and only one outside linebacker on the weak side. And, uh, they overloaded to the left side and, uh, you know, basically covered up Memphis's guard, tackle, and H-back to where they all had to execute a one-on-one block. And uh, Manny Hickman did a great job on that play. If, if you look at it and you watch it from a coach's perspective, the tackle's trying to reach and sprint out, and he maintains his gap integrity there. And the H-back actually tries to pin him as well, and he does a good job fighting over the top right there, and it forces the quarterback to really flatten out um, on that sprint out route. And uh, I believe it was Bruce Bibbins who came in on, on – it was not a pressure, but secondary contained. And, you know, Hickman flattening him out, and then Bibbins pulling the trigger, you know, at the perfect time to um, really – and they're playing zone coverage behind it when they got a man-beaten route. So – yeah, I've always said from a from a play calling perspective, if you take 85 plays in a game, the offensive coordinator is going to have a better call 10, 10 times and the defensive coordinator is going to have a play better 10 times. And most of the time it just comes down to the other 60 uh, – comes down to the other 60 plays when everybody's got just an okay play call and who executes it better. But in the most important play of the game, Blake Carroll had a better scheme play uh, than, than Kevin Johns did for Memphis. 
Yeah, I guess it does help too, um, Brett. When one team runs 104 plays, the other team runs 55. I guess that helps a little There's bit. There's no doubt. Um, uh, let's go back to to the end of regulation. There was some questioning about uh, you know not running more time, and and I can see both sides of it for sure in terms of uh, ECU had the first and goal, I believe, at the one. I think the clock was ticking around 1:30, and they snapped it with 26, 27 seconds left on the play clock. You know, at the stadium, I could see Holton Ehlers motioning in, hey, let's get the play in, let's go. They're on their heels. And I guess you have to balance. ECU hasn't scored in that situation really all day, at least since the first quarter. And it's been a major struggle. You got to score, but you also want to take time off the clock. So what is that balance like as a, as a coach in that situation? Yeah, I mean, the analytics tell you you got to hold there and you got to run four plays and you got to make them use their timeouts. There's no doubt, you know, there's all kinds of whether or not it's been money ball in baseball for the last 20 years and it's made its movement in football over the last 10 years. There's no doubt that the the book says you hold, you make them start burning your timeouts. But, you know, as a head coach, you got to have a feel and. Uh, Memphis had, had clearly done a really good job inside the 10-yard line all day against against the ECU offense in the red zone. And you just kind of have to have a feel of what the right call is for that game. And I guess I was a little bit befuddled early because I wanted them to run clock. And I think, I mean, you had shared a text and you was like, yeah, man, but they were gassed. And that's one thing you can see in the stadium that you can't see on TV. You know, they're – they're taking the screenshot, the Holton or the sideline or whatever. But, you know, when you're in the stadium and you're on that sideline, you can see their hands on the hips or, you know, they're struggling to substitute or whatever the case is. Um, you get an idea of, of, you know, should you burn a clock or should you just go ahead and score? And in the end, you know, was it the right decision? Who knows? Because it did get Mem- give Memphis time to go down and kick another field goal. But, it's not like ECU could be okay with getting three that time. You know, the game was 20 to 16, so they had to score a touchdown. So it's neither here nor there, and it ended up working out. You know, it's, it's just the age-old deal that you see every weekend. If you watch a college football game, the coach has to go against what the analytics say versus what's the feel of the game say. And the, it always amazes me, Brett, the margin of, of defeat – and victory. I mean, if, if Memphis ends up making that two point conversion, we're probably sitting here doing a whole podcast on not running more clock or what defense they ran in the wrong situation. But because ECU won the game, it's almost like it's just a footnote instead of the main story. I mean, it it really is kind of crazy sometimes when you look at sports because really it all comes down to winning and losing. You find a way to win. Everybody looks looks past the, those uh, those iffy moments. You know, you have to be okay with that as a coach. I mean. You're you're never going to be a hundred percent on those on those decisions, and you know in the end it worked out. Do I think it was the right call by the chart? You know, but once again, I, people think it's a, a caveat, or I'm trying to, you know, I don't see the film. You're not there in person, so like they think I'm just not going to uh, blame a coach or whatever the case may be on on play calling or whatever. Man, those guys put in a lot of work. And they know their team better than than we do as fans, better than their opponents know you. Um, and in the end, you know, it was all the decisions yesterday culminated in being one point better than the other team. And like you said, in the end, that's all that matters. And they were one point better than Memphis um, 
even though every other stat realistically says that was a that was a two touchdown win. Um, if if you looked at that that whatever Tom McClellan gives you guys after the game, and you looked at that, you didn't know the score. I said, oh yeah, that's a that's a thirty one to twenty one win. And uh, but the bottom line is all those decisions, and anytime they got second guess and guessed, it culminated in a one point win yesterday. There's no doubt the win at the end of the day is the main thing, and that is the most important thing. Um, Brett, I, I pulled up a stat from Pro Football Focus. I don't know if you saw this or not on the board about ECU's blitzing yesterday. Yep. And we've talked a lot about how much Blake Carroll blitzes, it's his identity. But going into the game, Memphis was pretty elite against the Blitz. I mean, they get the ball out quick. They have some good uh, RPO games against the Blitz. They hit two touchdowns yesterday against ECU's Blitzing. Um, but ECU ended up only Blitzing – let me see if I find the number here – just six times in 37 dropbacks for Seth Hennigan, which was a season low. Uh, on those six Blitzes, Hennigan went four for four against the Blitz with two touchdowns. So – I think they got hit with some blitzes uh, – or they got hit with some big plays on the blitzes early, and they seemed to adjust to that, played a lot more coverage, and that that seemed to really affect Memphis. You saw Hennigan take off on some, a number of scrambles, and he was effective that way. But I think you can live with that versus him slicing and dicing you with some big plays. Yeah, I think ECU in general over the last month, Stephen, I think I've mentioned this to you a couple of times just in text or talking or whatever the case is, that – They've been better on the back end playing coverage the last three or four weeks, I've thought, than they've been in a long time. You know, Jaquan McMillan is is he's a very good player. I mean, yeah, I'll stand by the fact that I think he's the best corner East Carolina's had in my lifetime. As good as he is in man, when when people are blitzing or in one-on-one situations, he is an elite cover two corner. Like, his ability to kind of rob the flat air, that play he made yesterday was a great friggin' play. I mean, that was a great play. And, you know, he had the big pick. And then uh, Fleming's pick six against um, uh, Thursday night game, you know, that was another big-time play in a, in a zone coverage situation where they're just in kind of off quarters playing the quarterback's eyes. You know, I think those two guys and, and Saba made a couple. Gosh, the play he nearly made in the in the two minute drill yesterday was a great play. Kind of playing what what I call robber eyes coverage. You know, is another situation which is kind of a combo man zone, but the safety's in a in a zone situation. You know, breaking on the ball. So as those guys get a little bit better breaking on the ball, and it's it's catch tackle or it's you know, in a position where you can either pick the ball off or, or knock it down, it gets a little bit easier. And and it's culminated in the fact that the, the, they're getting a more consistent pass rush with four. You know, I mentioned the overload front that they've uh, started to get out of uh, the front. They're not doing that with five and six-man pressures. They're doing it to um, – you know, they're working three-man twist games with that overload, and and Blake's doing some good stuff. He's not to get too technical, but he's trying to show that front so that he can get whoever the opponent is in the slide in their front that way, and then he might be working uh, a twist game with a linebacker and a DN back on the weak side of that because he knows he's getting zone protection to one side and man protection to another, and then he's dropping a DN. So it's a lot more effective right now as a four-man rush uh, with the fourth man coming from various spots, you know, where you can still play your whole menu of coverages, seven-man drops, whether or not it's cover four or cover two, 
you know, the robber stuff that they do or, or, or even some cover three as opposed to, you know, having to live and die with cover zero, which we saw him get beat on yesterday. Uh, we can get into that play if you want to, or, um, you know, cover one man free um, as they've played plenty of with, with five man pressures over the last couple of years. But uh, I think it's probably just that I think, you know, to make a long story short, I think it's obviously they, they had an understanding of what Hennigan did as a quarterback against the Blitz, and he does a nice job, but also the fact that they're just getting more consistent pass rush with four guys and they're playing better zone coverage on the back end than they've played you know, in the, in the last couple of years, which is allowing him to not have to be a dial-a-Blitz guy. The, the evolution of this defense is something else, and the youth of it is also special when you look at the future of it. I just compare it to, you know, if you go back and watch a 2019 ECU football game and see how much just base defense they played under trot to what they're doing now, it's it's crazy to see the evolution of it. So that was a big-time hire by Mike Houston. Now they got to find a way to keep Blake Carroll going forward, which we'll talk about maybe at a, a later date. Uh, offensively, Brett, we talked about the issues. Well, let's talk about the – let's get the bad out of the way first. We'll talk about the red zone. I want to hit on the third down conversions uh, as a major positive, but – uh, the yeah. red zone execution was obviously not there. Um, Memphis just pretty much sent the house every time ECU got inside the 10. Like you pointed out, fair bit of grabbing, holding. Oh, gosh. That wasn't called uh, on Memphis. We had, I, one, we, had the, we had a fade to Aldi there in the corner that he ran a bad route. He turned over his, he turned over his outside shoulder instead of his inside shoulder, and that, that should have been a catch because I thought that was a good throw. You know, I just – I don't know if that was a very good route, but, you know, there was some serious molestation going on on the outside. Uh, yeah, the one on C.J. Johnson, I mean, how do you miss that? You know, it, yeah. it is, is down, down in the right corner of the end zone, but um, – I Guys, you can't make it – I mean, it's hard to be more simple than the – they send eight to seven gaps. Like, you don't have enough to block them and run them. So, like, you've either got to make an unbelievable run like they did on the goal line for the first touchdown, you know, or you've got to be able to, you know, catch and throw it. And, and you know, credit to Memphis. They didn't call it – you know, it is what it is. But I do think um, – you know, they are a little bit more willing to run Holton down there. You saw him pull it one time on the zone read. And if you go back and look at the one that uh, I guess it was the first trip down there, they're running zone read and Holton pulls it. I mean, Memphis didn't even cover the two tight end, the tight end and the wing combo. They didn't cover Calhoun. And I believe it was Calhoun and Jones down there at the tight end wing combo. And if they're not going to do that, you know, having a play action pop pass or something like that down there is always a good thing. But, I mean, if they're sending nine, uh, you, you're going to have to be able to, to throw it effect, a little bit more effectively down there, and, and hopefully they don't, they don't get away with what they got away with yesterday. So kind of a catch-22 down there in the red zone. Yeah, I saw a lot of complaints about, hey, wh- why ECU's running the ball good between the 20s. Why are they not running it inside the 10 or on first and goal from the two? Well, I think they tried it, like you said, a couple times. It just wasn't there, and, and again – Memphis was sitting in the house. At some point, you just have to make a play in the passing game. Amatosho's got to make that play. Uh, somebody's got to fight through some tough coverage. you got to make a good throw, et cetera, et cetera. One thing I did notice is they threw a lot – they looked a lot to the flats and to the outside, obviously, and I know those are a lot of goal line plays, but very few throws over the middle in those situations. Brett, is that something you could attack 
in that situation going forward? You know, one of the one of the great things in in the red zone, you know, this is kind of something Steve Spurrier made famous, even going back to Florida, and it's you know, you know, one thing I, I haven't seen East Carolina do over the course of this year or even is those high lane kind of back of the end zone type throws where – and it's it's hard to get a quarterback to buy into that because anytime you're throwing a dig or a square in or whatever the case is in the middle of the field, you know, you tell them low because they're taking that guy off boots first or hit him in the chest. But, you know, that ball that's eight to ten feet in the air toward the back upright, you know, is usually – is generally a pretty good red zone idea or red zone throw. But those are more six, seven, eight-yard line third and goal situations. When you get down in there too tight, you know, you start running out of space. And, you know, it, it, again, it goes back to the South Florida game. You fumble on the goal line inside the one because you're a little bit afraid to get up under center. You know, the one thing that I think getting up under center on the goal line helps you with is there is a general sense, a better sense of misdirection, whether or not, you know, it's power with the bootleg because the quarterback's turning his eyes to the defense you know, you, they tried to do some of that yesterday, but again, you know, when he's catching that snap five yards deep and he's turning his back on it, you're not getting the same amount of misdirection as you are seeing the quarterback's back right away when he pulls off the line and the under center. But that's not who they are, you know, so I understand that. And, um, you know, it, it's just right now it, it's a flaw on this team. You know, I don't think there's any doubt that if, if I had one thing to pick out, on this football team that 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 I'm scratching my head about today, if I'm if I'm Donnie or or Coach Houston, is how do we turn these? I mean, what we do? Kick three field goals inside the ten yard line or inside the ten yard line? I mean, that's nine. That's eleven points you're leaving on the board. So uh, to do it one out of three times is okay, but you know it, it was clearly it was clearly the method of which Memphis was able to stay in the game was was our ineffectiveness to, to score touchdowns down there. 18 of 26 on third down, which is uh, amazing because ECU entered the game, I think, 128 out of 131 teams, however many teams there are in FBS these days. Uh, ECU is 128. Uh, I guess the good news is the high rate of conversion, Brett, which is I think it was around 69 or 70%. But the bad news is you weren't you, – you have to be pretty non-efficient on first or second down to get 26 third downs. But yeah. when, it, when it counted, they uh, they made big-time plays on third down. Well, it was a couple of things. Number one, I thought, you know, second and six, DK didn't panic yesterday. You know, he was okay with going empty and throwing a little three-yard spot route or even running it again. And when you play a lot of those downs were third and twos, third and threes, where Holton was able to – we were able to either run the ball for the first down or, uh, you know, get in empty sets or get in four wide sets and, and work quick routes to Tyler Sneed or little snag routes where, where CJ CJ's uh, or Audie's size becomes effective, you know, not having to run by people or run deeper concept routes, you know, more, more just catch and throw type situations. So anytime you can stay within third and two to third and four, you know, your percentages are greatly going to grow up or, or excuse me, go up. And, you know, another thing is when your number's that good, 
third down, you know, I would I would love to see a stat of what it was on third and medium, third and six to third and nine. I mean, it called because I thought Holton played his best game of the year. I just I thought he was totally in rhythm down the field. A couple of the seam throws were great throws. Um, you know, his decision on when to run, when to stay in the pocket and deliver, you know, when to when to not force a throw. I just thought he was very sharp. Um you know, I, I think he has a tendency sometimes to either bail too quick or maybe force a throw in there. Uh, yeah, he mentioned in the post game, kind of having an idea, and this was obviously coached up. You know, when they give you this front, they're going to be vulnerable uh, to their rush lanes this way, or you know, on the weak side or or on the strong side. And, um, that was obviously coached up pretty well. Maybe not quarterback designed runs, but still situations where I think the staff has become uh, less hesitant. Maybe this is because there's been growth of, with the backup quarterback or the fact that they finally realized he's just 235 pounds. You know, it, it let him run. You know, he's going to be okay. And um, he just made some great decisions on when to take off and making plays with his legs al- along with his – um, in his accuracy throwing the football. You mentioned the empty sets. I wanted to get your take on this. I, I, I noticed a ton early and really throughout the game, like on third and two, third and one, even the fourth and one in their own territory. Yeah. They go empty. Uh, I think that was a play Ehlers hit Sneed over the middle for a short gain. What, what do you see as a coach in a defense that says, hey, we're going to have success going empty this week versus maybe a, another defense that you would hesitate to do that? Well, I, you know, it's a great question. I think some of it is, um, some of it is, is just the fact that you have Sneed, who's kind of the ultimate safety valve, where where he's working, whether or not he's running the the old Westwood option route. And I'm going to break out if I get inside leverage. I'm going to break in and run some type of deal over the ball if I get outside leverage. And again, you know, Holton just if they're not going to bring six and they're going to bring five and you got five blockers there, you feel pretty good about a situation that if they bring five, if you can pick them up and they bracket everybody off with the other six guys that he can take off and get two or three yards, you know, with, with a design quarterback draw or whatever the case is. Now, a couple of those times Memphis played up, you know, just a traditional zone cover where they brought four and, and, you know, they just, it's a soft spot and I've only got to get three yards and I'm just going to run a little spot spot hitch route. You know, they, they made it easy on us a couple of times in that empty stuff instead of going with, with press man or um, something of that nature. But it was obviously a big part of the plan. And, you know, I think to me, when, when we can get into empty and he can get the ball out of his hands quick, I think it's a great extension of the running game along with, um, you know, along with those screens and those flares that that they've gotten so good and effective at throwing to Roger caught one yesterday, but by and large, that's been a that's been a Keaton Mitchell play most of the year. I want to talk a little bit of Navy with you later uh, as we wrap up the show, but before we do that, put put a bow on Memphis. Brad, I mean this this game, and I picked ECU to lose this game because the main reason was I thought it was very similar to UCF and Houston. Like, I mean. Getting over that hump is such a big deal, and finding a way to win a conference game, a big conference game, is a is is hard enough. But then to go on the road at a program that's thirty and three in their last thirty three home games, seventeen wins in a row in November, and the pressure of needing that sixth win, all was against ECU. So to get that win, 
you know, I kind of said going into the game, that's if you do that, if you achieve that, that's the next step of this program under Mike Houston. Um, I, I think they took that next step. I think the co- I really think the corner has been turned, so to speak, and now it's just how good can they get the rest of this season and in the coming years? Kind of what's your take on what this win does for the program, you know, short and long term? Not to get too personal here, we came into a situation at West Brunswick where they had not been very good for 20 years. You know, three winning seasons, and our first year went five and six. And then the second year, we think we're going to have a pretty good team. And I might even have said this to you before the App State game is we were getting ready to play Hogger that year, and we were six and zero, oh, and it looked like we had turned the corner. But they had beaten West Brunswick 22 years in a row in a situation, and I basically told our kids all year, you are who they think you are until you're not, you know, if that makes any sense. And I think you could see the emotion on Mike Houston's face after that game. Like, you are the the bottom dweller. You are the cellar dweller. You are the team that everyone in the AAC has checked off since 2014 as a scheduled win until you're not, you know, and you can put good film – you know, on on display against Houston or UCF, but it's still, pardon my language to everybody, to the exterior, unless you've been watching the team, it's still sorry ass East Carolina. You know, that's who you are. You know, you've lost to you've lost to UCF. You've lost you've lost games. Even though you're getting a little bit better, you're still that guy until you're not, until you find a way to do what they did at Marshall, until you find a way and now the next progression is this week because this is another team that has totally owned us. And and don't think Mike Houston's not going to say that, but, you know, going back to that year, we had beaten Hoggard, and the emotion just poured out of me because nobody works harder. No one takes it more personal to, to win a game like that and to start from the bottom – and now, within two and a half years, he's got a bowl-eligible football team. No one works harder than the head coach, whether or not it's the high school all the way to the National Football League. No one takes it more personal than that guy does. And it was just great to see him have that moment with – and great to see Holton, you know, have that moment because the weight of Greenville has been on that kid's shoulders. I mean, he was the guy coming out of Conley that, you know, he was going to get us back there. And, I mean, he's taking his crap from – from peers, from people uh, on campus, from those message boards to whatever. And for him to have a day like that, to to have that moment, you know, you can't help but feel good for the kid. And I'm not casting aspersions on fans who have been difficult on them because part of what makes ECU, you know, such an attractive place is the passion of the fans. But no one cares more than the head coach, his staff, and those kids on the team. And for them to have that moment and, um, you know, you couldn't help but but feel really good for them and and to see the the people meet them at the airport and uh, you know just my my son was crying after the two point conversion was stopped because he couldn't even watch it and he went in the other room and he heard me and his mom yell I mean it's just a great moment and that's uh, feels like you know it, it feels like it's the start of of something that that's that's going to be really good over the coming years yeah it just feels like the it really takes me back to, you know, growing up as a kid, every game of ECU football is such a big deal. You know, you would get text yeah. or water cooler talk. And for the past five years, it just kind of died down due to the, you know, the way the program has fallen off. And I feel like 
this game in particular, to see the people at the airport. You know, that, that's how it always used to be after big wins, man. And that's the first time it's been that way in years, and it was awesome to see that. So I think the passion is coming back. It's slowly trickled back in over, over this year, and I think this type of win makes it come back, uh, hopefully for good, uh, as yep. Mike Houston continues to turn this thing around. Um, Brett, I uh, wanted to, to hit on Navy real quick. There was, a, there was a post on the message board about, is Navy a trap game? Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe it is, but I kind of laughed at the thought of it just because of, like you said, Navy has kicked ECU's ass for years. Uh, it's been an embarrassing series for East Carolina. Um, much better effort last year with Blake Carroll having a good plan, but still a loss at the end of the day. And ECU has not beat Navy since 2011. They've only beaten them once all time. Um, I think ECU should take this game personally. I mean, this has to be a game they take personally. Absolutely no doubt. If this is a trap game, I will be shocked in terms of, like, they might lose the game. I'm not saying that. But, number one, it's not as good of a Navy team. Uh, They've been trending down the last couple of years. But they did play Cincinnati great, you know. And they've not seemed to have our number. They have had our number. I think the one thing you get, and this is in no way casting aspersions on on Scotty Montgomery or or even Ruffin McNeil, because Lord knows we had some bad moments against him with, with him as the head coach too. I think Mike Houston understands what a triple option. I'm not talking about just the scheme. I'm talking about the mindset that a team like Navy has, you know, they talk all week about this is how triple option people think, that we're just going to out-tough you, you know, and it's going to be famine, famine, famine. You're going to do a good job, but eventually your your mind's going to wilt or you're not going to physically want to play that cut block anymore or, you know, we're going to bleed you to death and you're just ultimately going to get frustrated and it's going to become – you know, pardon the pun, because I know you're dealing with 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 Navy, but it's a war of attrition. And they don't believe that mentally, you know, you can withstand it even when you play well against it. Uh, not to mention when you totally get out coached or out schemed, it can get really embarrassing on you, as as we found out, you know, oftentimes during the you know, the Brian Mitchell days or or whatever the case was, or heck, even they sauced us and 2006 when I was in school. So uh, that is the, I, that's the one thing that gives me hope, you know, I think coach Houston is going to just hammer and beat that into those kids' minds starting tonight uh, of this is how they think. And they think they're just going to out tough you and they're going to outwill you. And they're just going to eventually make you quit. They're banking when you have an emotional letdown after a monster win and they think they're going to beat you 28 to 14 or whatever the case is. And that's just – that's what they're telling their football team right now. And to put it to bed once and for all that East Carolina is a soft, finesse football team that doesn't want any part of this type of game, this is what we are. And if you've been beating that in their mind for the last three years that this is what we want to be, this is who we are, not only do you practice against it all year, but you go out and you prove a goddamn point defensively that we're going to go out and we're just going to shut their rear end down. And if ECU can do that uh, defensively, I do believe we'll score enough points to, to win the game. 
next Saturday. It, it would be a classic trap game under any other circumstances, but I just kind of get the sense, knowing Coach Houston, knowing Blake from coaching in a triple option system defensively for a long period of time, I, I'm 100% confident in his ability to uh, have a great game plan and get those guys coached up. I just think it's circled, and I think you're going to see a team that is emotionally ready to go, and I think they're going to get their seventh win next week. Yeah, I just – I can't see a scenario where they are feeling too good about – you know, if they were playing, I don't know, some team that they would beaten recently, Temple or South Florida this week, maybe you get a letdown. But I just don't think you can go to Navy and not be prepared based off the history of the series. And like you said, Mike Houston knows that mindset because he was a triple option coach. So he knows how Navy thinks. Um, so yeah. it's going to be a, a big deal going into this game. Um Last thing, any you know, people like to think the triple option. You kind of just do what you do, but there are a lot of wrinkles and variations in it. No, I mean the the one thing I guess the triple, you know, and I believe I did an article on it last year. It forces you to be incredibly vanilla on the back end. I mean, there's only one or two coverages that you can have, and if you look back at the 2000 and uh, Coach Houston's first year, the 2019 film. Yeah, I think Navy completed like seven balls for 130 yards. And like, I mean, we're not from here to the road that's 30 yards behind me within anybody uh, of covering them. So, uh, you know, ultimately it comes down to Coach Harrell and the staff. You know, Roy Roy understands it, having coached the D-line against it every day in practice. You know, you're going to get cut. You're going to get chopped. You're going to get – high load and not intentionally, I'm not calling it dirty football. I'm, I'm not, but by nature of some of the calls it, you know, that, that right guard might be trying to slip to the uh, linebacker or whatever. And and he gets a little engaged with that defensive tackle and that tackles coming to chop him. I mean, you know, that takes some, it not only does it take physical toughness to withstand it, it takes the mental discipline to come back the next play after you get cut and not worry about how you just got blocked, but to play the next call, you know, play the next play and the eye discipline that it takes to play linebacker. You know, when we were at North Greenville, um, when, when I was working for Jamie Chadwell, who's now the head coach at, at Coastal down here, and his defensive coordinator, Chaz Staggs, we played Lenore Ryan, ironically, when Coach Houston was the defensive coordinator in 2009, and they embarrassed us, and they were really, really good. And we knew going into the next year, we were going into the South Atlantic Conference as kind of a conference affiliate, not actually in the conference. We're going to play everybody. And at that point, Lenore Ryan, uh, Brevard, and Carson Newman were all double-slot triple option teams. And we practiced against it three times a year in the in the spring where we took three, spring, three of the 15 spring practices and devoted to it. And every Monday – which was our Sunday practice back then. Um, we didn't practice on Monday. We practiced, or excuse me, we didn't practice on Sunday. We practiced on Monday. We would take 10 minutes every day at practice and go over option rules, option procedures. Um, and and I think Coach Harrell takes a very similar approach with Navy all year that they're always working on it. They're always working on maybe not telling the kids, but you're working on playing a slip block or a cut block or whatever the case is, because that's what's going to carry over to playing them um, every single year. And, you know, it's always a, it's always a great test of 
you'll find to me, we'll find out more about the culture of this program on Saturday than we will at any point this year. Uh, because it, it, how do you handle success? Can you go on the road and win two conference games in a row? Heck, glad Saturday was the first one we'd won. Can you go on the road and win it again? And, you know, you got Cincinnati coming in the next weekend on Thanksgiving. You got every distraction in the world. Uh, are you mentally tough enough to focus all week when everybody's going to be patting you on the back? Uh, but I just, man, I just, I, I got a hundred percent belief in Coach Houston, Coach Harrell, that they're going to be ready for it. You know, I think my bigger concern is, is, is certainly offensively. Brett Hickman from West Brunswick High School, and yeah, the offense. And we'll talk more later in the week, but ECU's offense has let them down a lot in these matchups, and that'll be a key yeah. on uh, on Saturday in Annapolis. Brett, this was fun, man. I, we could talk all night, but uh, we both have a lot of stuff going on in our lives. Um, so uh, I'll let you get back to it, man. But I really appreciate the time. As always, good to get you back on the podcast, and who knows, maybe uh, after a seventh or even an eighth win, we'll, we'll get you back up here short in short order now that you're your season at West Brunswick's over. We'll be done, and, you know, we're about to start talking some bigger picture things, how, how we're going to pay our defensive coordinator to keep him around and, you know, extension, no extension. Uh, what do we do? But bright days ahead for Pirate football is a, it's a great way to celebrate. No doubt. For Brett Hickman, I am Stephen Igo, and you guys have been listening to the Hoist of Colors podcast. We'll be back with you later this week for a more in-depth Navy preview. Until then, thank you guys for tuning in.